Hello, this is the Meiji at 150 student podcast. My name is Ben, and I'm going to be talking about J-horror and the filmmaker Mikei Takashi. Hi Ben, thanks for talking with me. Oh, no problem, thanks for having me. So we're going to be talking about J-horror and Mikei Takashi. So what interests you in J-horror? Well, as a, a film fan and a film student, um, I was always kind of drawn to, to looking at film or combining film and history. Japanese horror especially had always this kind of reputation as being particularly terrifying or particularly shocking to, to someone like me as well. So I, I kind of have historically avoided it and then this has kind of inspired me to look into it and look into whether is this kind of reputation at Orientalism at work or is it is it genuinely more scary than what I would normally expect from a horror hmm. film. That's a really good point. So what kind of J-horror films did you watch? Um, Ring and Audition. Um, I don't know if I'd actually seen any until this assignment came along. I was, always, I was very aware of Audition and aware of things in it that made me want to keep it at arm's length. And also uh, Ring always had this kind of mystique around it as well. Off the top of my head, I don't think I, I saw any J-horror films before this, but I've always been interested in, in Japanese cinema generally. Kurosawa especially was something I watched constantly in, uh, in sixth form college when I was about 17, 18. That was really a big deal for me and wanted to kind of explore more avenues of cinema in Japan, really, yeah. So you like horror films as a genre in general and now kind of transitioning to Japanese horror and kind yeah. of aligning your interest in Japanese cinema with your interest in horror more generally? Exactly, yeah, and I think horror is one of those ones where I've probably had a lot of catching up to do now that I'm a film student who's, whose job it is to kind of explore more. It's been really refreshing to, to see stuff that I hadn't seen elsewhere. So what are some differences between, say, North American horror films and Japanese horror films? You mentioned, uh, is it just Orientalism, or are there things that are different between the two genres? Well, we, we talked about in the presentation a kind of um, a, a very different relationship with the supernatural in, in the storytelling traditions, where Japanese stories often feature a a more harmonious or maybe a more ambiguous relationship with the supernatural where in maybe horror films from from North America they they're kind of inherently malevolent and to and to be defeated and explained in a lot of cases where um, in Japanese cinema maybe they're neither explained nor necessarily to be defeated I think yeah, that's a good point uh, I mean you think of these Japanese horror films that have been remade in Hollywood and they kind of get the Hollywood treatment and The Ring in particular, I remember watching the two different versions of The Ring and as you mentioned in the American version the way that the protagonist tries to get rid of the curse is by uncovering the reason that Sadako, mm -hmm. in this case, or I, I forget what she was called in the American Samara, version. I think. Samara, yeah. why she's haunting people is if, well, we if we uncover the, the case, we can we can break the code. And so indeed they, they do that and uh, the the guy he figures out his equation and, and knows where he's been going wrong, everything gets explained, but then he gets killed in the most shocking moment of the film. Mm -hmm. So it's like even if maybe you can explain it or you can explain parts of it, you can't defeat it or you can never fully fully understand. And in Hollywood horror cinema, it's, it's often the kind of, you think of the, the, the jump scare, right? The kind of sudden movement, the sudden loud sounds that kind of is just meant to just scare you just through kind of unexpected occurrence. But then there's also this kind of, I, I think of like the... 
uh, Freddy Krueger example mm-hmm. of just like the grotesque, yeah, and just the the horrifically scary, uh, horrific violence, hor- even even visibly horrific and body horror and things like that. Yeah, seems very different in Japan. So, what kind of horror elements do we get in J horror? I think um, what really resonates with people about Ring is that um, it does have jump scares, but very very few and far between, and they feel very much earned by a more pervasive sense of, of terror that kind of mm-hmm. lies under the surface and it's that kind of unexplained grey area that, mm-hmm. that people struggle with and I kind of wonder if the if it feels more of a grey area because it's what we'd consider culturally alien or culturally mm-hmm. foreign. I think one of, one of the things that the J-Hor films do so well is they take the mundane aspects of everyday life and just make those incredibly horrific and, and what, I'm, what comes to mind most poignantly is the film Chakshin Ari, or One Missed Call, yeah. where even the very simple act of a phone ringing just causes so much tension and so much dread throughout the course of the film, yeah. where it's something that is incredibly simple. Even the simple sound of something that happens multiple times a day is enough because of the context to fill a person with dread. Yeah, I think that emerged from my, my study of ring and audition in that it finds horrific elements in maybe the, the trappings of a modern life. And I think I read a quote that described how these elements kind of augment a anxious reality, I think they, mm-hmm. they described. So it's a, it's a technological aspect in, in Ring. And then with Audition, it's kind of a, an interpersonal thing. And I've been thinking about it a lot in terms of the, the current topic of uh, History 376 in the, the idea of modern urban alienation and that being a source of a source of horror and auditions main conceit that you can't really know people you can't really understand people hmm. and um, it uses the aesthetics of urban alienation and unhealthy gender dynamics that come out of that to hmm. kind of really bring out the horror mm-hmm. yeah I mean it's often film scholars will often talk about horror the horror genre in particular as a kind of reflection of changes in society at the time and perhaps the danger of these changes so Let's talk about the film audition specifically. What happens in the film? What's the plot? What's the basic character storyline? And then how is this, how can we see this as a reflection on what's happening in Japan at the time it's made? So it focuses on a, uh, a widowed man of, of several years who kind of is fairly high up in a media production company and is uh, keen to, to kind of get back on the market and, and find a new wife. And his colleague is kind of a is the most obvious example of male chauvinism in, in the film. And he encourages him to, to set up a fictitious audition for a film that is actually essentially an audition for a, a wife. And throughout it, it's got this very strange tone of kind of an awkwardness of, of romance and loneliness. And then what's beneath the surface is very extreme horror and um, particularly gruesome scenes at the end that have kind of become infamous. And trying to situate that in society is particularly interesting because it's a film that's simultaneously been read as misogynistic and feminist at the same time, or by, by different people, I think. But um, that's a particularly interesting aspect to look at. And Mike Takashi kind of... He, he doesn't fall down one way or another on that. He's, he's really into the idea that his characters are supposed to be... Well, humans are complicated, and he, he says he doesn't, he doesn't want to make characters that are easy to understand because maybe life's not easy to understand. And I think that's kind of my, mm-hmm. 
my interpretation of him as a filmmaker is just his whole MO is about defying categorization and, and blurring boundaries, really. And so then how is Audition reacting to society at the time? Yeah, um, I think there's constant references throughout of, of the loneliness of, of the Japanese man or that everyone in, in Japan is lonely and um, not understanding women is, is a constant theme and I think that has particularly gained some resonance in the in talking about the, the era of growth and how it finds the monstrous in alienation between people and the commodification of human beings and, and that kind of thing that, that runs throughout a lot of films of this kind of genre. And what year was this made? Uh, 1999. 99. Premiered at the, the Vancouver Film Festival of that year yeah. and um, it was interesting that um, that kind of international reputation that it gained meant that people thought that Mike Takashi was, a, was an overnight success. And I found a quote that was like, outside of Japan, people didn't realize that Audition was his 35th film in nine years. <laughs> right. Yeah, he, he makes uh, <laughs> several films exactly. a year sometimes. And you mentioned that he, he kind of resists gender categorization and, and often blurs lines between different types of, types of film uh, genres. Now, one film in particular that blurs a lot of things together is Happiness of the Katakuris. Absolutely, yeah, um, which is recommended by you, and I and I, I went into it with uh, not knowing what to expect, but still all my expectations were, were kind of defied in a, in a weird kind of way. <laughs> for, um, for those people who haven't seen it, do you want to describe the film briefly? So it's a four-generation family, and a man has recently lost his job. His son has been in prison. His daughter is recently broken up with a, a partner or something, and, is, and there's an aging grandfather in there. And um, they decide to kind of recuperate their their lost earnings and happiness by opening up this kind of guest house. But then weird, ominous, terrible things happen to all the guests, and they keep trying to cover them up. <laughs> all the guests keep dying. Yeah, Every single yeah. guest dies they, when they, they come make to this a, make a song out of each one as well. And it's a, a musical. It, it's marketed as the uh, the sound of music meets Dawn of the Dead. Um, <laughs> yeah, and uh, I think that was interesting to read about as well because it kind of showed me that even films that seem to defy basis in reality or categorization are still product of society. So I, I read about that as very much a product of the collapse of the global economy where this particular kind of happiness that this family was seeking, all the ingredients for happiness they had within themselves and they needed to find new ways of, of, of happiness because the old ways led them to ruin in the first place. And I think there's that song at the, at the end, the very, the very triumphant song, the line is something like, man is weak and lonely, but until we we close our eyes forever. Let's live to laugh and dance, which is, which is a nice way to end. And yeah, it's a, it's a surreal experience, but a really interesting one, I think. Is this a before or after the claymation volcano? That's after the volcano. <laughs> yeah, the claymation is, is something is, is something else as well. <laughs> it's fantastic. I mean, there's a. A karaoke sing-along, there's yeah. a claymation little monster that starts tearing people's eyes out. It's, a, it's an incredibly strange, but as, as you said, provocative and also thoughtful film and a thoughtful reflection on the kinds of despair that came along with yeah. the bursting of the bubble in the late 90s. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think it was, it was kind of a, a heartwarming film by the end, but it's, yeah, it's really great. And it speaks to how hard uh, Mike is to, to categorize as a whole. Which is a new dimension of the the J horror thing that I that I looked at, where J horror itself is kind of a very 
quite a crude category and often impl- uh, applied by by Western audiences mm-hmm. that can often overlook how difficult these films are to classify. And I think mm-hmm. Mike is kind of an embodiment of that because he's not quintessentially one thing or another. Even on a even on a national level, you can't really say that he's quintessentially Japanese because that would put him in a, a box called Japanese filmmaking, which hmm. doesn't doesn't really apply in and of itself. And that kind of goes against his whole his whole ethos as a filmmaker, I think. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.